0: Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Matt Martens with thoughts on reforming the criminal justice system. What we have
1: to do as fallen people in a fallen world is do the best we reasonably can, take all reasonable means. I think in in certain respects we are not using all reasonably available means to achieve accurate verdicts.
0: Matt Martens, next. In his new book, Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal, trial attorney Matt Martens argues that love of neighbor must be the animating force for true reformation of the criminal justice system. He's a former federal prosecutor, defense attorney, and a partner in an international law firm in Washington, D.C. Matt, tell us how this book came about. I think it was a function of two things.
1: One was just spending now nearly 30 years thinking about uh, the law, the criminal law in particular, as a Christian, trying to think through what it means to do justly, you know, probably getting it right more than I got it wrong, but learning along the way, because frankly, I didn't really know of any resources like the book now I've now written to sort of help me think about it. And then I guess the precipitating event was when the country started to experience a lot of unrest around criminal justice issues, first in 2014 with the events in Ferguson, Missouri, and then really becoming heated with uh, the George Floyd events of uh, the summer of 2020. And so so a, a, a current pastor at the time and then a former pastor both of whom knew I had practiced criminal law and both of whom knew I had a seminary degree urged me to write the book. One of them urged me back in 2014 and I kind of blew them off. And then the other in the summer of 2020 was like, you should really do this. And I was like, okay, but I've never aspired to write a book. And I don't know even how you get in contact with authors. I mean, with publishers or how you present your idea. And so, so people helped me with that gave me book proposal examples, and and so I spoke to Crossway, and they were interested, and so it kind of took off from there. I, I agreed, I signed a contract in the spring of 2021, and
0: um, it took almost two and a half years. So what are you essentially uh, proposing in your book? It's a Christian proposal?
1: Yeah, the, so the book's two parts. The first part is a theological part, and the second part is a legal part. So then the theological part, what I'm trying to provide is or proposed, so to speak, is a framework of how to think about criminal justice as a Christian. I'm assuming my audience is Christian, though I'm thrilled if non-Christians read it, but I'm assuming that my audience accepts the the authority of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, uh, accepts the Christian tradition, understanding Scripture and thinking about Scripture in relation to law. So I'm, I'm assuming that is a given, and I'm arguing from that what I understand scripture to tell us about justice and in particular, criminal justice, legal justice. And in the second half of the book is I, I take the criminal prosecution process, break it down chapter by chapter and say, here's how the system works. Let me tell you about jury selection. Let me tell you about how we pick judges. Let me tell you about uh, how evidence was presented, about the right to counsel, etc. Def- the death penalty, sentencing. And then Compare that to the the framework of justice that I've laid out in the beginning of the book. The framework of justice I would I would describe as having one core principle and four derivative principles. The one core principle is that our obligation is to love our neighbor as ourselves and that to love your neighbor in the legal context means to judge his or her case accurately to judge it truthfully. That means both to rightly define through the law, right from wrong, and then rightfully determine through a trial who committed the the wrong. So accuracy is the core of what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves. No one is loved by inaccurate verdicts, the, the wrongly convicted isn't loved, the the victims who believe they've obtained justice but in fact have not are not loved, the society who's left exposed to the wrongdoer isn't loved, and the actual wrongdoers left unloved because he or she has been deprived the corrective discipline that the law is meant to provide. And so the core of loving our neighbors through the law is accurately judging their case. Now there's four derivative principles from that. One of them is due process. Because we're finite, fallible people, the only way we can judge accurately is through a process that surfaces and tests the relevant evidence. We're not mind readers. We don't have time machines. We're not clairvoyant. So if we're going to judge cases accurately, it's because we've developed a process and we follow a process that surfaces the relevant evidence and then tests the relevant evidence for what it actually shows. The, uh, the second derivative principle is impartiality, that we could have a process, but if we come to the process biased, we're gonna get bad results. And so what justice demands, what judging accurately demands is acting with impartiality, judging cases based on the facts, not based on the personalities. The third derivative principle is proportionality, that we must speak accurately not only about who committed right or wrong, but how wrong the wrong they did was. was. So someone commits a murder. Uh, We don't give them a traffic ticket. And if they commit jaywalking, we don't execute them. We have to speak accurately, truthfully through the penalty we impose about the seriousness of the wrong done. And then the fourth derivative principle of accuracy is accountability, that we have to hold government officials accountable when they have been given the responsibility to judge accurately, they, in fact, judge inaccurately. They commit their own injustice. And so speaking accurately, judging accurately means speaking accurately and truthfully, not only about the wrongs done by the governed, but also about the wrongs done by the governors.
0: And these are principles that you derive from Scripture.
1: Every single one of them, either directly or derivatively. So accuracy, you can see, for example, in Romans 13, where Paul says, there's no authority but from God. And... The authorities are given the authority the governing authorities have the authority to bear the sword it says against evildoers so implicit in that is that you don't have the authority to bear the sword against non-evildoers and so you have to judge accurately you have to distinguish the evildoer from the non-evildoer you see the principle again in uh, genesis 18 where abram's negotiating with god over the cities of sodom and gomorrah and god says that he won't destroy an entire city full of wicked people if doing so would result in even 10 innocent people being uh, judged in the process. So you see there God's commitment to accuracy in rendering his judgment. And then you see uh, passages like Deuteronomy 19, um, which talk about the judges examining the witnesses in the gates and punishing false witnesses. Um, you see it in statements like Ze- in Zechariah, I think it's Zechariah 7-9, where the prophet recounts that uh, we should render true judgments. You see it um, in Exodus, where it talks about um, staying far away from the false charge. So you, I could go on and on, but any number of principles or passages establish that principle of accuracy And then the other principles, I think, are derivative of it, though you even, for example, due process, you see that in Scripture talking about in Proverbs, he was first in his own cause seems just, but then his neighbor comes Mm -hmm. and searches him out, right? You see a process being described there. You see the idea of impartiality explicit where we're told to judge impartially because god judges impartially um, you see examples in scripture of leaders who commit injustice being held accountable isaiah 10 talking about um, uh, woe to those who render fault, uh, unjust decrees so there you see this idea of accountability um, and proportionality you see in the the concept of eye for an eye in the Old Testament, so so you can see those other principles being reflected, but but I think they you can also see that they are derivative of the idea of judging accurately. They all relate back to that that ultimate fundamental
0: commitment. And so somehow, if if one of these is, you hate to use the word perverted, or but is not is not followed or is not applied accurately, that can then result obviously in injustices or unjust verdicts.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So if you you could have a a system that says we only uh, return verdicts of guilt on proof beyond a reasonable doubt. That sounds great. That sounds like a commitment to accuracy. And you could even have a process in place that would be designed to achieve those accurate results. But then if you operate that system with partiality, favoring people based on wealth or disfavoring them because of poverty or favoring people because they're of a particular race, well, now you've undermined that commitment to accuracy, even though you had due process. So you need all of those to ultimately generate what is an accurate verdict that speaks accurately not only about who committed the wrong, but also about the severity of the wrong
0: they committed. Well, your book is Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal. My guest is uh, Mr. Mr. Matthew Martens. And you write in your book, uh, Matt, that you believe the American criminal justice system is broken. And how so?
1: So broken might be, a, I don't know if I want to go that far okay. in, this, in this sense. In this sense, we definitely, I think, are not doing all we reasonably could do to achieve the accuracy that Scripture demands. So if that's if by that you mean broken, then sure, I think we're failing to live up to the standard that God calls us to. I don't think we're we're not going to and i'm not pollyannish about this we're not going to have perfection this side of eternity what i argue in the book is that we have an obligation to use all reasonable means available to us to render accurate judgments if you if you're going to demand that we never have an inaccurate verdict then you're going to have to you're demanding in effect that we don't have a criminal justice system yeah. because because if we're going to have one we're going to get it wrong right the question is as fallible people We should be striving for perfection, but recognizing that what we have to do as fallen people in a fallen world is do the best we reasonably can, take all reasonable means. And what I'm arguing in the book is that I think in in certain respects, we are not using all reasonably available means to achieve accurate verdicts. And what reasonable means means will differ across time and space. So what would be reasonably available to us to achieve accurate verdicts is much more than was available to ancient Israel and is much more than might be available even today in other parts of the world. We have a particular stewardship and in exercising the authority to achieve justice that god's given to us we have an obligation to use all reasonable means available to us to accomplish that
0: and in one sense maybe people uh, this would immediately come to their minds that of dna evidence where we have that that means today which it was not available i don't know decades ago when perhaps right. a certain number of people were convicted and now we're seeing i think in your book you write over what a thousand exonerations
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that's a perfect example. So prior to August of 1989 with the advent of forensic DNA technology, that was not available. So when it becomes available to then not use it and allow false convictions to occur would be an injustice. And you actually see this at times where and this has become much less frequent, but you saw state officials resisting allowing people who had been convicted to go back and do some DNA testing you know why would we not use that reasonably available means to achieve accuracy and so yes that is a reasonably available means now and that allows us to achieve more accuracy. Now, that may not be available in other parts of the world either because they don't have the scientific sophistication or the financial resources, but we do. And we're a particular people with particular resources in a particular place, and that creates a particular stewardship for us.
0: And you've been addressing this in different ways already, but I'm just kind of coming at it maybe from a, more, from a broader vantage point. If somebody says, how can I think about The criminal justice system, as a Christian you've mentioned, it's fundamentally an issue of love or of loving one's neighbor, and and perhaps that's sufficient, but but it seems like there's there's more to it than that. You have the issue of even justice and and what the Bible says, what justice is to God, actually.
1: Yeah. So a couple of points there, one, that we as imagers of God created in Genesis chapter one to image God means that we should reflect what he is like, we should display, we should be like what he is like. And that that growing as a Christian, being sanctified, to use the, the theological word, is mm-hmm. to more and more reflect what God is like. And that means in the realm of life where we, where our life touches the justice system, whether that's as a voter or as a direct participant, maybe as a police officer, as a prosecutor, We have an obligation to live, to image justice as God defines justice, to to try to display what His justice looks like. That's how we glorify Him And everything we do, whether we eat or drink, and wherever we do, do all the glory of God. We bring glory to God by imaging, by displaying to a world what His justice is like and how we execute justice. And in fact, that's the only authority that he confers. Any authority we have is derivative. And so our obligation is to, to as derivative actors, display his justice, to execute his justice. And so what is justice? Well, if you go back to Augustine in the, th- in the fourth and fifth centuries, he offers the definition that really is the definition Christians recognize even today. To justice is, according to Augustine, giving to every man his due. Mm giving to every man what he is owed. And so what are our neighbors owed? What are are our fellow citizens owed? Well, scripture tells us what they're owed. They're owed our love. And Christians define love not as a sappy or sentimental feeling toward other people. It's not just an emotional reaction. It's it's the desire and the seeking of the good of others. If I love you, I seek your good. Uh, That's what it means as Christians understand it, to love. And so if you put that together, if if justice is giving everyone their their due, and what you are due, what you are what you are actually owed by me as a Christian is my love, is my seeking your good, then justice is seeking your good, uh, seeking the good of all my neighbors. Um, and and what's interesting is I think we don't, uh, at least I didn't really before I started working on this, was understand that love is not, just a gift. It's not discretionary. For the Christian, love is an obligation. Neighbor love is an obligation. It is fundamentally what it means to be a Christian. It is the core of the Old Testament law and prophets. It is the command God gave to love God and love our neighbors. He says, everything else hangs on that. That is the anchoring peg uh, of what it means to be a Christian. And so my my love for you is something I owe you, you have a claim on it, I have an obligation. And so I think that then brings the, the, the justice question full circle. What, is, what does it mean to give everyone his due? It means to give everyone my love, which means to seek their good, to seek their well-being.
0: Well, as, a, as an attorney, and you've written this book, Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal. Where would you want to begin if, if if to reform the criminal justice system? I mean, it's a gigantic subject to even say that phrase, but where do you think the priority of the Christian believer should be first? So if I was gonna uh, fix the
1: system, I think that there's two things I'd wanna focus, two or three things I'd wanna focus on right from the outset. One is uh, the provision of counsel for the poor. Hmm. So the, the vast majority of people who are prosecuted are poor. I mean, at least in the sense of unable to afford the expense of a lawyer. Uh, in our country, in 1963, the Supreme Court recognized that the poor have the right to a counsel, and uh, even if they can't afford one. We sort of take that for granted now because we all watch TV. And when people get arrested, we we hear the police rattle through. You have the right to speak with an attorney, and and that goes back to the Supreme Court's decision in Gideon versus Wainwright, interpreting the due process clause as including the right to a lawyer. Because as they explained, if the prosecution is represented by a lawyer and there's complicated rules of evidence and procedure governing cases, the process you get would be meaningless if you didn't have a lawyer who could help you navigate it against an expert advocate on the other side. And yet 60 years after that decision by the Supreme Court, the promise of the right to counsel, the promise of that case, is still very much an unfulfilled Hmm. right in this country. And I think people don't appreciate the degree to which that's true. So the American Bar Association has been doing a state-by-state study on um, the, the provision of counsel. So they've looked at states like Rhode Island, Missouri, Indiana, New Mexico, Louisiana, uh, so they've uh, Oregon. So they've looked at states across the spectrum, and what they've concluded is that I, that most states provide one third the number of lawyers needed to handle the, the caseload. Uh, of
0: impoverished people mm. in that state, one-third. So they don't get good, re- obviously, they, the representation. So it's
1: not even really a matter of the quality of the lawyer. It's a matter of the capacity of the lawyer that there's only so many hours in a day. I mean, there's an article in The Atlantic from 2015 <coughs> recounting how there was a public defender in Louisiana who had 19,000 cases a year. So if you just do the math, 2,000 hours a year, 60 minutes in an hour, uh in those 2,000 working hours, that allowed the lawyer, at seven minutes per case. Mm. So, so yes, did that person have a lawyer standing next to them in court? Yes. Was that person capable? For all, for all I know, I have no reason to think otherwise. Um, but the issue is, when you only have seven minutes, there's only so much you can do. And so, um, I, I I worry about the process. Remember, if we go back to you know, we say the right things. We say proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and we say the right things, you're going to have a lawyer. But if we're not, we say the right things, you're going to have the right to confront your accusers. But if we don't actually provide a lawyer who's got enough time to represent you in your case, I worry that the process breaks down and thus the reliability of the verdicts breaks down.
0: And I know you have two more points to to make it to my question. What what areas would you start with in terms of reforming? But uh, it it sounds like it's a crisis uh, in terms of uh, attorneys, defense attorneys that can represent the poor. How can you fix that? You need more lawyers.
1: The good news is it's not a mystery how to fix that. (laughs) Right. If you've got one third the number of lawyers you need, you need to spend three times as much money. The bad news is the one of the few things there's bipartisan commitment to in the United States is that we do not need more criminal lawyers. <laughs> uh, and so so you have a, a easy solution, a readily available solution and a lack of political will uh, to achieve it. No one's running on a political platform of more defense lawyers. And Mm -hmm. so there's no one speaking up for the people, the poorest among us who are in this situation to advocate for what is really a crisis situation in many states. So that's that's the I think the clearest area that needs the most immediate attention, but is a challenge politically to achieve. Mm -hmm. Um, This plays into the second issue, which is I would change American style plea bargaining. Mm. So I think people don't appreciate. Uh, that not, uh, probably ninety five percent. The estimates are ninety four to ninety seven percent of criminal cases are resolved not through
0: jury trials, but through through guilty pleas. Through that doesn't bargaining. that doesn't make good television. <laughs>
1: well, that's why people don't know it, right? Because who's writing a TV plot about guilty pleas and <laughs> plea negotiation? Like, you know, it's about the trial, and and so I think that leads people to think that oh, most people get their day in court. Most people get a trial. Hmm. Well, part of the reason most many of those cases don't go to trial is what I just talked about with lawyers. If your lawyer doesn't have enough time, that puts incredible pressure on the lawyer and on the system to resolve cases through pleas. And here's what I say about the plea bargaining process in the United States. Everybody should hate it. I don't care if you are you consider yourself a political conservative or a political liberal. I don't care if you think yourself law and order or a bleeding heart. You should hate American style plea bargaining because it is premised on injustice. Hmm. Let me explain what I mean by that. If we have a constitutional right in the country to a jury trial, and you do, it's actually the one of the only rights that's in the Constitution twice. So you have a, a constitutional right to a jury trial in a criminal case, and yet ninety five percent of people are pleading guilty. How do you get ninety five percent of the people to give up their right to a jury trial? I mean, why not just go to trial and play for fumbles? Yeah. Well. The way you get 95% of people to give up their right to jury trial is by either threatening an unjustly long sentence if they go to trial or offering an unjustly lenient sentence if they don't go to trial. It's one or the other. Those are the two options. And so that's why I say I don't care if you're a law and order conservative or a bleeding heart liberal. If we're offering either or both of unjustly severe sentences or unjustly lenient sentences That is an unjust system, and that is in fact what we are doing. We are threatening people with unjustly long sentences if they go to trial, and we are offering unjustly lenient sentences if they give up that right. And that means that what we're – the justice we're rendering, so to speak, isn't speaking the truth about the severity of the wrong done. It is depriving victims of a truthful statement about the seriousness of the wrong done to them. It is depriving the defendants of the the appropriate correction they need and the truthful statement they need to hear about the seriousness of the wrong done. And, and that is a serious, a serious problem in the United States. The, the, the system, the degree to which it relies on plea bargains and the degree to which that results in sentences that are wildly out of step with the seriousness of the wrong done is a major problem with our system. Um, and so if, the, if you say, what's the second thing you're gonna fix? Well, if I fix the number of defense lawyers so that these cases can go to trial, that's gonna get me a long way, though not the entirety of the way of solving the plea bargaining problem. The third thing I would fix is goes to the accountability principle the supreme court of the united states has held that a prosecutor who intentionally hides evidence of your guilt and fails to disclose it before trial and allows you to be wrongfully convicted cannot be sued for the injury you suffer as a result of that Hmm. the the prosecutor has absolute immunity you people these days have started to hear about this idea of qualified immunity that police have against lawsuits. It's even worse for the prosecutors. The prosecutors have absolute immunity, no exceptions, intentional violation or not. They cannot be sued for violating your constitutional rights, hiding evidence of your innocence and wrongfully convicting you. So if you look at the 3,385 exonerations that have occurred since the advent of forensic DNA technology in 1989, 60 percent, according to the National Registry of Exonerations, 60% involved police or prosecutorial misconduct. So you see what the fruit is of giving people immunity. You say to the police and prosecutors, you can't be sued if you violate people's rights and wrongly convict them. We shouldn't be surprised then when 60% of the wrongful convictions now involve police or prosecutorial misconduct. And this is a violation of the principle of accuracy. It is not speaking truthfully about the wrongs of the governed in addition to the wrongs uh, of the governors in addition to the wrongs of the governed. You know, we, we're we not even speaking accurately as about the wrongs of the governed, we're convicting wrong people wrongfully, but then we're not speaking truthfully and holding accountable those responsible for that. You know, Irenaeus, a famous bishop in early church history in the second century wrote a book called Against Heresies. And he said in that, that the, if the magistrate, if the government official acts to the subversion of justice, he too must perish. We've decided that he too must not even pay uh, for financially for the wrong that he or she has done. Um, and I think that that's a serious injustice. It's a serious failure of our system, and we shouldn't be surprised then at all these wrongful convictions.
0: So, what is the solution to that? How was that The good news news and the bad
1: news again. I'm a guy with good news and bad (laughs) news. The good news is we could fix it tomorrow. That when the Supreme Court made that ruling, they made it not as a matter of constitutional law, but as a a matter of interpreting the statute, what's called Section 1983. They interpreted the statute as having this immunity in it. Uh, That Congress could change that tomorrow. Literally, Hmm. Congress could pass a statute tomorrow and the president could sign tomorrow a statute that said – That police or prosecutors who hide evidence of innocence can be prosecuted and forced to pay financial damages. That could happen tomorrow. The bad news is there is no political will for that, Uh, in part because uh, people don't want to be seen as standing against the police um, uh, and because the police have such a powerful lobby on this point. Um and I think also because people are not aware of the degree to which police and prosecutorial misconduct leads to these wrongful convictions. So you when these stories come out of these wrongful convictions, usually the first reaction I hear from people is, I hope they sue them. And I'm like, Well, they can't. Um and I think people don't appreciate that the that the law prevents those lawsuits that would make right the wrongs that people have suffered or make partially right. I don't even want to say right. You can't give people back even through money the decades they've lost in prison, but at least we could provide some compensation so they could get on with their
0: lives. So if somebody has been wrongfully convicted in in that manner and it's proven, can they still be exonerated even though they cannot hold the the actor whether the prosecutor or the police accountable? Uh,
1: yeah, they can be exonerated and they can be their conviction can be overturned, they can be released from prison. Um, but now you have people who have been in prison for 10, 20, 30, in some cases, 40 years. They're now well into their their late ages in life, and, and they're supposed to do what? How are they supposed to make a living at this point and mm-hmm. if they can't sue the state and the state doesn't have, as some states do, a mechanism to provide some compensation? You've got people who've lost out on decades of earning power, who've lost out on decades of being able to save um, who've lost out on decades of being able to develop employable skills, and and now they're left to do what? Um, they can't get recompense from the people who did them wrong.
0: You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, attorney Matt Martens, author of Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal, Part 2, Tomorrow. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us again tomorrow at the same time for another edition of His People.